If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, Sheeks are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out of blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And Sheeks bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try Sheeks for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is the World According to Zig podcast for November 3rd, 2019. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show. We can still get the truth about the news of the day from a conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. For those of you who want the political news, make sure you check out my other podcast, which is the Individual One podcast. You can find that at freespeechbroadcasting.com, which is also the home for the World According to Zig podcast, as is usually the case, but particularly the case this week, there is a ton to talk about. All of it is uh, very interesting and unique to this podcast. I mean, that's the really, that's really what this podcast is about. This is stuff you will not hear anywhere else, and there's a ton of stuff that fits in that category this week. I'm going to begin uh, with some personal matters involving the fact that this, of course, was the week of Halloween. Uh, I've talked a lot about Halloween over the years because, uh, you know, as a dad of two young daughters, this is a major part of your life. Uh, there's, an, there's a rhythm to the year and to the calendar. And obviously when you transition out of summer and you go into school, the kids need something to look forward to. And the first thing they look forward to is Halloween. And Halloween, of course... Why, my gosh, in this day and age, uh, we're already in Christmas now, as insane as that is. I mean, we have just gone boom right from Halloween to Christmas. We fight that like the plague in our family. We, I, I, am, I am trying. I'm going to be the last of the Mohicans drawing the Christmas line of the day after Thanksgiving, at the very least the night of Thanksgiving. We let, we let the seven-year-old Grace, uh, she has a little tradition where she watches uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer on DVD Thanksgiving night. So that's okay. I'm, fi- I'm fine with that because, you know, Santa Claus comes on the Macy's Day, uh, Thanksgiving Day parade and whatever. Okay. But uh, from a commercial standpoint, we're basically in Christmas now. But uh, Halloween is a, is a big holiday in, in our family, at least it is uh, currently because you got two young daughters. And we have this tradition where we go to my uh, wife's uh, parents' place uh, because their neighborhood does uh, Halloween up in a big, big way. And our hope this year, we try to do family themes, right? Everyone you know, wears something that's somewhat similar, but it never works out. We had hoped to do a Toy Story theme this year because Diana, our two-year-old, is huge into Toy Story. 
huge. And she she loves Jesse. She loves them all. But she was going to be Jesse, the, the female cat, uh, cowboy. And I was going to be uh, Woody, the, the male cowboy. Uh, now, this was ironic because uh, I now hate Woody. I, I hate Woody uh, from Toy Story with a, a great passion. If you don't know why, uh, check out my review of Toy Story 4, uh, where essentially after 25 years and three uh, movies of Toy Story, uh, where Woody's whole deal is, you know, you got a friend in me, and uh, he's the leader of the pack, and uh, he's willing to save everybody together, blah, 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 blah. Uh, at the end of Toy Story 4, spoiler alert, uh, he ends up uh, deciding to leave all of his friends for a chick, for little Bo Peep. Uh, which uh, really pissed me off, especially in the way that they did it. So I don't even like Woody anymore. Uh, never was a huge Woody fan, but now, now, I, now I have an open disdain for him. I have so there's how much dis, you think I'm kidding. I, there's so much disdain I have for Woody. Grace, my seven-year-old daughter, and my wife no longer will even let me talk about Toy Story. Because they know as soon as the Toy Story topic comes up, I'm going to go on some sort of diatribe against Woody and what a fraud Woody was after 25 years of pretending to be one thing. And then all of a sudden, for a plot point, they destroy 25 years and, and three and a half films. So um, that, so when I say something like that, that's for real. It's pathetic, but it's for real. So uh, I was uh, Woody, uh, Diana was Jesse, my wife was Barbie. Now my wife, it's amazing that she pulled off Barbie in, in a leotard because, you know, my wife, if you remember, at the very beginning of this year, it's hard to believe it was the very beginning of this year, so much has happened, but she underwent some major, major surgery. And, you know, she, it, it, she's a mother of two and she's in her 40s. So, you know, not too many mothers of two in their 40s who have undergone major surgery who could pull off uh, the Barbie leotard on Halloween. But, boy, she pulled it off because she has been working out uh, furiously, trying to keep herself in shape, which is much appreciated. She looked fantastic. And so uh, we, we had uh, three parts of the Toy Story. Now, Grace, being her own child, of course, uh, she decided to go her own direction because that's what Grace does. I am the leader. Do as I say. Now, she was originally going to be uh, Little Bo Peep. Uh, but then she decided that she was going to do her own thing because she's completely obsessed with this uh, this cartoon that's technically under the Disney umbrella, but it's I think it's Japanese, and it's uh, clearly uh, focused on on a European audience because it's about Paris, even though the in uh, in the American version they speak English, but it's called Miraculous. Uh, where there's this female, a, a teenager girl, who is the superhero star, and she uh, turns into a ladybug. And so uh, Grace was ladybug for Halloween, and boy, she was pumped. She was so pumped. Now, Grace tends to get pumped for every Halloween, and that backfires because there's too much hype, there's too much anticipation, and then it all falls apart. This year, for some reason, that did not happen. By the way, it may not, it's possible that it didn't happen because of the fires we were having, which I'll get to briefly, because that totally changed the, the time schedule for how everything went down. 
uh, because of the fires we've had here in Southern California. But uh, for whatever reason, uh, this actually was one of those rare moments that that met the hype for Grace. And because Grace is kind of like the weather of our family, uh, she was in a good mood, which meant everybody else was in a good mood. Diana was fantastic. I mean, Diana is is a trooper. She went to every single house. She didn't slow us down at all. She looked great as Jessie. She was having the time of her life. Wow, candy? If I go up to a house and say trick-or-treat, they're going to give me candy? This is awesome. Life is good. So uh, it's very, very rare, especially when you live uh, my snake bit life, that events actually uh, come anywhere close to what you hope they might be. But this Halloween uh, is going to be tough to beat. This was about as good as it gets. And so uh, I wanted to share some good news with you because it's so rare to have that happen in the world according to Zig. But Grace had a great time. Diane had a great time. And consequently, uh, my wife and I and all of her family members did as well. So Halloween 2019 is going to be tough to beat. Now, I mentioned that this was all happening within the midst of some uh, wildfires that were breaking out all over Southern California, including uh, Halloween night in our backyard, which we didn't even know. I got a, I got a text while trick-or-treating from my good friend Cyrus Narasta, the, the filmmaker, the guy who uh, made, among other things, The Path to 9-11, which is what I made my first documentary film about. Uh, he lives in the, in the same uh, city in, in Southern California that uh, we live in, and he was alerting me that there was a new fire uh, that broke out. Well, before I get to that fire, one of the things that really impacted Grace's schedule heading into Halloween is that she did not have school on the Wednesday before Halloween or on Halloween itself or on the day after Halloween because that was a previously scheduled in-service day. So she ended up having five days off when you include the weekend for these fires. Now, if you don't live nearby, you think, well, John, my gosh, they have to protect the kids. Yeah, of course they have to protect the kids. But uh, what you don't understand is there were no fires anywhere directly near the the school and uh you know the the wednesday i kind of understood the first day that they they did not have school because it was very windy the santa ana winds were up there were fires all around you don't know how bad the the air quality is going to get and things can change very rapidly especially when it's very windy i mean you can have a fire pop up and you know you got an emergency on your hands now (laughs) I am I am still baffled though, and I have expressed my bafflement both publicly and privately to the school officials. I'm still baffled over the logic uh, that is at work here because the logic is, and they tell they tell you this. They say, out of an abundance of caution, we are canceling school because of the health concerns created by the air quality. Well, there's two problems. Number one, the air quality was freaking fantastic where we lived, partially because of the wind. Because guess what? When you have a lot of wind, guess what happens? In generally, unless you're in direct line of the smoke, the air quality is great because the air doesn't have enough time to become bad. It moves out. And so that's number one, but I get that that can change. But here's my biggest problem, and, and no one can explain this to me. I've asked everywhere I can possibly ask if you have an explanation please email me facebook me direct message me on twitter or directly tweet at me i don't care i would love an answer to this because the the people who are making the decisions have never been able to explain this to me 
If you're canceling school because of bad air quality, right, how is the air quality at my house any better than it is at school? How is that? Can someone explain that to me? I, I live five minutes from the, from the school, okay? So how is the air quality any better at my house than it would be at school? And let's be clear, you're not going outside because it's too windy and, you know, theoretically there's smoke. So you're inside an air-conditioned school. Again, the power was not out. We were having power outages everywhere. So they had power. The air was fine. On Wednesday, the winds were bad, and they canceled school. Thursday, they canceled school again, and they did so on Wednesday night. Now, this is where I had a big problem. I had a big problem with this because here's why. Number one, Thursday's Thanksgiving. The kids are looking forward to the Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, Halloween. Thursday's Halloween. See, even I, even I'm screwing up the 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 calendar. Uh, at least I didn't say it was Christmas. So uh, Thursday's Halloween. So you have the Halloween festivities, the Halloween parade that the kids are missing out on. That's a disappointment because they've been looking forward to that. But even more important than that, because you have Friday already scheduled to be off. And then you get the weekend after that. Now you're ensuring a five-day off period consecutively, which blows a hole, especially for younger kids, in, in basically the whole semester. Because now you almost have to start over again from wherever you were a couple weeks ago because the kids have forgotten it all. So you get five straight days off. You, you uh, eliminate the Halloween festivities. And... As it turned out, the wind was dying down that day. So, and I, I immediately emailed the people that made this decision. I said, look, uh, this air quality thing makes no sense. The air quality is going to be just fine. It was fine on Wednesday. It's going to be fine on Thursday. And the winds are supposed to die down. And there are no fires anywhere near us. So why are you doing this? Well, the reason why they're doing this is because they're protecting their own asses. We now live in a world where everything gets canceled immediately. I call it cancellation nation because everyone is so terrified of what happens if something goes wrong, even if it's a 1% chance. That, you see, that's the, everything in life has risk. But we're now in a world where if that 1% thing happens, everyone's going to lose their jobs, everyone's going to get sued, and we can't have that. And by the way, nobody loses their job for canceling school on a day where they shouldn't have canceled it. Nobody loses their job over that because that's the safe thing to do. That's for the children. We're protecting the children. No, in this particular case, you were taking Halloween away from the kids, their Halloween festivities and their party and their parade that they were looking forward to. And, by the way, you're making educating them more difficult because you've just given them five days off unscheduled in the middle of the semester. And then, you know, now we only have a few more weeks until Thanksgiving, and that's a whole week off, and then a couple more weeks, and they get two weeks off for Christmas. I mean, this, it's, a, it's a problem. But more important than that, so just as I predicted, Thursday... Here's what the situation was where I live. Perfect air quality. The sky as blue as it could possibly be. Yeah, there were fires on television, and television has a huge impact on this. People see fires on television, and they think, oh, the world is ending. Southern California is a huge mass of territory. Huge. 
and, and then the local TV stations have to cover massive and massive amounts of land. All right. So uh, just because there's fires on television doesn't mean squat in your local uh, school district. So the air quality was fine. There were no fires in the vicinity. The, uh, there, and the winds were much lighter. So there was absolutely no reason not to have school whatsoever. But nobody's going to get any blowback for it because that's the PC world in which we live. And by the way, I think that there is a subconscious connection to the canceling of everything that is even remotely weather-related and this whole uh, uh, issue of climate change. Because you got to remember, all these academics fervently, fervently believe, religiously believe, in this concept of man-made climate change. And so when they have to uh, make the argument for why it is that they're canceling school when they never canceled it before, right? When they have to come up with a substantiation for why is it that we're missing more school days now than we did 10, 15, 20 years ago, they have a built-in excuse. And that is, well, because it's climate change. The world has changed and we have to adjust with it. Well, no, no, there's lots of other reasons why this is happening that have nothing to do with man-made catastrophic climate change. Uh, and, 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 but this continues, this slippery slope. There's a slippery slope of precedents that are being set here in every aspect of life. It's not just that we cancel school on a whim because we need to protect our ass. Now the other thing we do is we shut the electricity off when there's even a chance of a fire. And... I, and this is really, I think, uh, a very dangerous slippery slope because once you do that, it's just like it's just like canceling school, right? So now, no one's getting, no one is getting in at least enough trouble. They might get in a little bit more trouble because people do get pissed off when their power gets turned off, especially when it's for days. Some people didn't have power for days in areas that did not have a fire. Okay, so there's some blowback, but there's not enough. No one's losing their job. That's all that matters. Is anyone going to lose? Their, which, which, which is the scenario where you're more likely to lose your job? You lose your job because you decided to turn off the power and there was no need to turn it off? Or you decided not to turn off the power and something bad happens and, you know, a bunch of land and, and some homes and whatever gets burned up? Obviously, Precaution is in everyone's self-interest. And by the way, there's a happy medium there somewhere. But as soon as you set the precedent that this is now accepted, and this is now not just accepted, but expected, now they turn it off on a whim. And now everyone's without power, even though they're not directly impacted by the fires. Now, if this actually worked, if it worked in preventing fires, I would be at least open to things, thinking, okay, maybe this is just what we have to deal with because we're living in a in a very fire-prone area. We've overpopulated it. For some reason, the power lines are still all above ground when they should be underground. That's another environmentalist uh, wacko problem that they've created. They won't let us clear brush. The, uh, everyone's got way, way too much uh, uh, foliage everywhere. Uh, and you know, we have these electrical wires that are above ground when they should be below ground. Around. And if and in high winds, guess what's going to happen? Something bad is going to happen in the thousands of miles of electrical wire. Well, I have seen no evidence so far 
that turning off the power is is making a, a huge dent in preventing these fires from occurring in the first place. And in fact, the fire that broke out on Halloween that I already referenced that happened essentially in our backyard where we live and has is to this moment still threatening the, the golf course where I play, uh, although thankfully uh, there's been no major damage. The course is currently closed because the fire was so close and there was so much ash and what have you. So that's what that's my personal suffering. My, my, my golf course has been closed for the last uh, uh, few days because of this fire. But apparently this fire was set. Get this. This fire was set when they had turned off the electricity, and now they're turning it back on. That's right. That's right. It's not because they didn't turn off the electricity. Something happened when they turned it back on. Now, what we, they don't know, at least I have not heard as of yet, then there's two scenarios there. Either they turned it off, and in the turning turning the electricity back on there's some sort of spark that happens because of that that reignition and that's what caused the fire that's i guess theoretically possible or there's another scenario they turned off the power because there was high winds and it was a it's a, it's a you know a serious fire hazard situation and while the power was off something happened to the power lines in the wind thus making them uh, exposed to a, a flammable area and when they turn the f- power back on that's when the fire ignited that's certainly possible although that seems like a hell of a coincidence i mean that's some really bad luck right there because it's not like the power was off for for days and days we're talking about a fairly short period of time so maybe that's what happened but clearly the bottom line is turning the power off didn't help I, I, and uh, and it created, uh, you know, indirectly at least, an awful lot of damage. And and it's creating now this these precedents where we turn the power off on a whim, we cancel school on a whim, we cancel football games on a, I mean, you know, high school football games between major powers. Last game of the season, last game of potentially of high school kids' careers being canceled because of poor air quality. I, I just, I can't stand it. I mean, I, I can't stand this whole cancellation phenomenon. I, obviously, there's a threshold that has to be met, but we're going in the wrong direction, and there's no stopping. Once you go in this other direction, there is no stopping. And what kind of a, an example are we are we setting for our kids, by the way? When my daughter, who's seven now, when Grace gets older and presumably goes into the workforce at some at some uh, level and in some way, uh, is she going to think that because it's windy out that that means you don't go into work? Is that what she's going to think? I mean, she is. That's going to be the mentality. And by the way, you know, you know, I'm I'm ancient now. I'm 52 years old. It, there, there seems to be a massive generational divide on this issue. And as the world continues to get run by the generation that is now just turning 30, you know, the, the, the people that got uh, trophies for everything and, uh, and have been living in a PC world the entire, their entire existence, they don't even have a memory, like I do, of a world that wasn't quite so PC and where we had to protect the children at all costs. Once those people are now completely and totally running everything, it's over. I mean, everything's going to get canceled. I mean, forget. I mean, you're not going to cancel little get little, little league games for rain. You're going to cancel little league games because there's a chance of rain. I mean, I mean, it's, I mean, that's just the way it's going to be. 
And I'm seeing it in every walk of life, uh, and it's just going to get worse. And uh, I, 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 you know, I feel badly for for this next generation because a lot of you're you're going to lose out on a lot of fun. I mean, a lot of fun things are going to get get ruined because people are afraid to actually have events under circumstances that, if everything possible goes wrong, somebody might get blamed because we didn't cancel it. Once you've set that precedent, there's no going back. It is a very, very slippery slope. Now, I want to update you on a couple of stories that have uh, been very prominent in this podcast as of late. Obviously, the last two uh, podcasts, I focused a lot on a Matt Lauer story. And I wrote a column this week, which uh, hopefully you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com. I know you can find it at my my Twitter feed because I keep tweeting it every single day. I wrote a column about how Ronan Farrow is ducking me. Ronan Farrow wrote this book about Matt Lauer, former NBC News superstar host of the Today Show, who I met with a couple weeks ago for uh, six hours in his kitchen, wrote an extensive article saying, hey, wait a minute, there's another side of this story. Ronan Farrow is accusing him of rape and sexual assault and sexual abuse, and uh, the journalism in his book is garbage, and Matt Lauer has a very, very different story to tell. And this week I wrote a column saying, hey, I think it's very, very, very telling that Ronan Farrow will not do an interview with me. I mean, here he is promoting this book he's just written. I have information he does not have. I am willing to talk to him either on or off the record. I've given him both options. We can do an on-the-record interview where we can talk off the record where we share information just trying to figure out what the truth here is because I know I am positive. There are things in that book that are not true. Forget about the actual allegations by uh, the people who are accusing Matt Lauer of different things. I'm talking about the basic facts of his book, the, just the, 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 the nuts and bolts of it. He didn't check things. There are things that are not accurate. There are things, there are people in his, his reporting about Matt Lauer who he didn't check with. There, he cites them as, as people that are involved in the story. He never bothered to interview them or get a comment from them. They contradict the story. So the nuts and bolts of this aren't even right. Forget about whether or not you want to believe the actual allegations, which I believe are nonsensical, without evidence, and are contradicted by uh, just a, a voluminous amount uh, of uh, evidence and, and counter-narrative and common sense. Uh, and, of course, you know, I have a whole history with Matt Lauer. It, it has been very, very strange, I will say, uh, getting to, to reacquainted with Matt Lauer after all these years. I would guess that if you count the six hours or so we spent in his kitchen in the Hamptons uh, doing this off-the-record interview and you count our phone conversations, I would say easily, easily, he and I have discussed the the circumstances surrounding this entire story from his firing at NBC through the Ronan Farrow book and all the allegations against him. We have spoken about this for about 12 hours, maybe more. Uh, we're, we're now at the point now where uh, if I don't talk to Matt Lauer during a given day, my wife thinks something's wrong. <laughs> I mean, that's how strange this has gotten. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the more bizarre aspects of my life, and there are many, uh, and I'm not proud of this. In fact, I, I, I need an answer to this uh, because she keeps asking. But my daughter, uh, Grace, who's very inquisitive, always wants to know what is it that daddy does? What, what, what does daddy do for a living? And we have not been able to come up with a good answer to that. 
Uh, and this isn't a good answer, but but based upon based upon uh, how Matt Lauer has had his thinking evolve because of my interaction with him, I mean directly because of my interaction with him, and is now starting to uh, get the gumption to fight back. Uh, basically, one of the things that Daddy does is that he rejuvenates the balls of people who have been unfairly attacked by the media. That's basically what I do. <laughs> I don't know if you can put that on a business card or not. But I, I go to people who have been unfairly attacked by the news media, and I, I maybe I shouldn't say balls. I rejuvenate their spirit. Does that does that work better? I I, I, I go to them and I, I figure out a way to get them off their asses and to get them to start fighting back. And I, I I try to help in that process, one by by publicly telling the truth as I know it, and as well as I mean I'm very frank with Matt Lauer. I mean I I've told you before I I I told him Matt you got into this because you were an alpha male now you're acting like a beta male, uh, and uh, and he was a little taken aback by that. But I mean you know I don't mess around when I get involved I I, I play for keeps. Uh, and, you know, I want justice to be done. I want the truth to be known. I want justice to be done. I don't want you to have sympathy for Matt Lauer. Matt Lauer uh, made a lot of money, made a lot of mistakes. Uh, he's the first one to tell you that. Uh, I think his punishment didn't fit the crime, which was a consensual affair with someone who, who worked at NBC, not at the Today Show, not even at NBC News. Uh, but it was in the midst of Me Too, the Harvey Weinstein thing. He, he uh, stepped on a landmine, and, he, you know, he, he, he didn't even fight it. I mean, so I, you're not supposed to have sympathy for Matt Lauer here. That's not my game. People are, I'm sure, wondering, John, why are you doing this again? And here's, here's why I'm doing this. One, I do believe that Matt Lauer has been lied about. But it's more important than that. It's who has lied about him. And it's Ronan Farrow. And Ronan Farrow is an incredibly important and, I believe, dangerous figure in our culture now. And if it was anybody else, let's say it was, I don't I mean, pick anybody. It could have been any. Let's say it was an unknown reporter who, who wrote a book about Matt Lauer and did some crappy journalism and allowed him to be accused of things that he did not do. I would still care, and I would still want the truth to be known, but I would not be going to the lengths that I've gone. I wouldn't probably have gone to the Hamptons on my own dime on a red-eye flight without a hotel stay. That's right, without a hotel stay. You cannot be serious! <laughs> I would not have done that if this was not Ronan Farrow because this is so much bigger than Matt Lauer. So much bigger than Matt Lauer. This is about us and the media, not we didn't really do it, the media did it. This is about the media knighting Ronan Farrow as the ultimate arbiter of uh, what is right between male and female relationships that occurred years ago. Years ago. And he, he is an activist. He has an agenda. And by the way, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. I, it's kind of like Donald Trump somehow becoming president. He's literally the most unqualified human being you could possibly imagine from a psychological standpoint to be president of the United States. How the hell did Ronan Farrow, of all people, become this arbiter? I mean, he is literally about as unqualified to do this as anybody I could imagine, just from his own personal narrative. Yes, he's gay. That matters because guess what? He's never been in a male-female sexual relationship. And yet he's interpreting the data for us, okay? That's number one. Number two, 
He is a celebrity who comes from a celebrity family that is as fucked up as any family you could possibly ever imagine. And whose mother, who he sides with, his mother made what I believe to be a false allegation of sexual abuse against his own father in relationship to a one of their daughters in the middle of a custody hearing. And Ronan Farrow backed the mother. So he, he is literally the product of complete dysfunction in this very area and has bought into has bought his his name his literally his name pharaoh he's not allen he's not woody allen's no he might not even be woody allen's son most people think he's frank sinatra's son but he he did not take his father's name because he bought into this false allegation that mia pharaoh made against woody allen his literal name his literal name should disqualify him from being the arbiter of what is sexual abuse and what is not. Not to mention, in this particular case, he is conflicted because he was fired by NBC and, fire, and NBC did not take his Weinstein reporting, which he now thinks is the holy grail of journalism, which I have said before, I'll say it again. Even if you believe everything he's reported about Harvey Weinstein, which, by the way, I no longer do because I no longer have any trust of Ronan Farrow, having gotten deep into the Brett Kavanaugh and the Matt Lauer stories where I know he's lied. I know he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. But uh, let's just even presume he told the truth totally about Harvey Weinstein. There were 53 days, 53 days from the time that NBC said, you know what, Ronan? Uh, this is an interesting story, but you don't really have it nailed. Um, you know, go ahead and take this elsewhere. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it's basically what NBC did. There were 53 days from that time and the time that he finally published what he did in The New Yorker. 53 days. That is an eternity in journalism. Eternity. And so uh, I, I am not convinced that NBC made the wrong decision based upon what Farrow had presented them. And what I now know about what's in his book about Matt Lauer, he is not a good journalist. He is not a good journalist. There are basic things that are flat wrong. And you know, I mentioned that you know I rejuvenated Matt Lauer's uh, spirit, if you will. Uh, you know, when I first went to go see Matt, he wouldn't even let me put the book on his table. He lit, he was that disgusted by the book. And I went through the book line by line and got his reaction and told him things he had no idea were in the book. And he was like, what the hell? What? That's not a quote, by the way, since I'm not allowed to technically quote Matt Lauer. <laughs> that's, that's my paraphrase. It was a paraphrase of what his basic, basic reaction was, I cannot believe he wrote this in a book. And what's been really interesting in all of our conversations recently is that Matt Lauer is now turning back into a journalist. Matt Lauer is, is investigating Ronan Farrow's reporting of him. And he's, he's interviewing people and, and, and uh, even, even doing things that are, you know, like a basic reporter would do. Calling up, uh, you know, places that are referenced in the book and saying, uh, uh, can you give me the, you know, the true information here? And what he's finding is that Ronan Farrow didn't do any of that. He didn't do any of the legwork. He got tons of the nuts and bolts wrong. And I'm sorry, the details matter. When you, when you can't trust the details, how can you trust the overall allegation, especially when the allegation didn't happen until the person talked to Ronan Farrow? I mean, so I mean, I, I will have more uh, on this as it goes 
uh, on. Uh, I'm sure this is not the end. Uh, like I said, I mean, I talked to Matt Lauer extensively this morning. Uh, I'll probably talk to him again tomorrow. I mean, in fact, at this point, if if I don't talk to Matt Lauer, like I said, my wife's going to think yeah, we're breaking up. Uh, I mean, facetiously, obviously. But um, it's been very, very interesting. And there's a ton to that story that has not yet been told and needs to be told and hopefully uh, will be told. And I'll keep you updated as much as I possibly can. Now, obviously, I am uh, even more associated with the entire Penn State, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky uh, story. And there was a development in that uh, saga, never-ending saga, uh, that happened over the last couple of days, as well as a hearing that is scheduled for this upcoming week that I feel obligated to talk about. Now, this is so emblematic of the whole story, where there have been so many times where there's been something reported in the news that in a rational world, in a world where people had a freaking clue, where they used their brains, where, where they were not totally brainwashed, a rational person, even in the media, would go, huh? Like, what? How is that possible? And boy, this makes me wonder about the whole damn story. Well, that happened again this week. And unfortunately, most of the reaction is exactly the opposite uh, of what it should be, which is so typical of this story. I've always said this whole story is upside down. The white hats are the black hats. The black hats are the white hats. The good guys are the bad guys. The bad guys are the good guys. Everything you think you know about the story is totally upside down. And this week it was reported, and it was reported in a very, very strange fashion. It was first reported that somebody unknown was making an allegation against somebody unknown. Now, by the way, how is that a news story? <laughs> right there. How is that a news story? But it was originally reported in State College by some local media that somebody was making an allegation against somebody. I'm not making this up. That they had been sexually abused in the the Lash building. It's just the that's the building where some of the most notorious alleged incidents involving Jerry Sandusky took place on Penn State's campus, the the athletic building there. That somebody had been abused by somebody in the Lash building at Penn State within get this, I'm not making this up, within a ten year time period. That's right, from the year two thousand. I think it was June to like September of 2010. A 10-year period. 10-year period of time. You cannot be serious. And let's be clear about why that 10-year period of time is, is so absurd. It's not just how in the world could someone not remember whether or not something happened in 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, or 2010. That's inherently absurd, right, in the real world. It's not just I, my memory is so bad I can't remember if something happened 9 years ago or 19 years ago. you got to remember that these allegations occur with young boys. Now, they're not nearly as young as the public has been led to believe almost all of these allegations were from the ages of, say of 11 to 15. And so, uh, but the, the reason why this is important is this is not a situation where, <laughs> where an adult can't remember something happened within a 10 year period of time, which would be insane. This is way more insane than that because you know inherently how old you were in any particular year. 
so you would have at least a clue about how old you were when the allegations occurred. And there's an incredibly short window when, based upon Jerry Zanuski's alleged, underline alleged, M.O., uh, where this could have occurred. There's only about a three- or four-year window. So and so, how can the window for this allegation, this unnamed person, uh, be 10 years long? Because let's say they were, let's say they were uh, eight years old in 2000, right? That means that by the end of the, the window, they're 18 years old. Well, you know it didn't happen when you're 18, Although some of the more insane allegations, like Matt Sandusky, has had to contrive, contort himself into a pretzel. And so somehow he and a couple of others, to, to get around statute of limitations issues, have claimed to be, uh, you know, big football players uh, being abused by old Jerry Sandusky by, the, you know, when they're 17, 18, 19 years old. But within the, at the trial, nobody was that crazy. Even the prosecution wasn't that nuts. They realized, you know, we can only sustain this narrative till someone's about 14 or 15 years old, and then it becomes absurd. Uh, but so, so inherently, before I knew anything about the story, I'm like, this is just crazy. Why would anyone take this seriously? Now, of course, people were sending me the story before Jerry Sandusky's name was even attached to it because it's Penn State, it's the last building, it's sexual abuse, it's the years in which Jerry Sandusky was supposedly being a, a notorious uh, child molester. Um, but I, I'm like, come on, people, are we, re- we really cannot be taking this seriously. This is this is a joke. Well, then, and this I don't understand how this happened, but I have no faith in the news media, especially in State College. The story that had no names attached to it got updated a few hours later and suddenly had Jerry Sandusky as the person who was being accused. Now, the story had obvious inaccuracies, even if, you know, I know it was inaccurate because the allegation is is insane off the bat, but it, it seemed to indicate that there had been some charges charges like like criminal charges that the police had criminally charged somebody and that that then person was uh, when the story was updated that was jerry sandusky and i'm like there's there's been no new charges that wouldn't even make sense the guy's in prison uh, and he's he's got a sentencing hearing coming up at the end of this week which is interesting timing but uh that that, that didn't make any sense and i don't believe that's true i i believe that what's happened here and it was poorly written and there's a lot of media incompetence everywhere is that someone has made an allegation thus the synonym charged they've made an allegation to the local police that they were sexually abused by jerry sandusky at the last building within this 10-year period of time but we still don't know who this person is we don't even know their age which of course is the number one thing you need to know right in order to evaluate any sort of allegation the age is incredibly important it's incredibly important one to try to figure out okay when this could have happened because there's a the short uh, window of three or four years in a logical world but there's also in the rational world there's the issue of the statute of limitations and someone who is uh, older than the age of 30 and let's be clear, it is theoretically possible that this person, you know, again, they weren't abused, but I'm just going by what they're claiming, that if you claim to have been abused in the year 2000 or 2001 or 2002, you could be uh, over the age of 30 now. And if you're over the age of 30, you're outside the statute of limitations when it comes to making a civil complaint 
against, uh, say, Penn State. Now, interestingly, no one has ever sued Jerry Sandusky. And they might have done it indirectly, but no one has ever taken Jerry Sandusky to court. No one has ever gotten a settlement from Jerry Sandusky. No one's ever had a trial, a civil trial against Jerry Sandusky. Why? Well, because Jerry Sandusky will fight it because Jerry Sandusky knows he's innocent. And also Jerry Sandusky doesn't have money. Instead, the focus has always been on Penn State. Penn State has lots of money, and they haven't fought anything at all because they've seen it as a badge of honor to uh, give away taxpayer money to make the media think that they're handling this horrible scandal in as, as, as a, a, a positive a manner as they possibly can. So they get no blowback for using other people's money to make themselves look good. So no one has sued Jerry Sandusky. No one will sue Jerry Sandusky in a, in a real way because... They, then they'll actually have to prove their case in court and they'll be laughed out of town once there's actually scrutiny to their stories. But here's what I think really happened. So, so, so the, this news story gets updated and, and this drives me crazy because now I got to spend and in, uh, not a ridiculous amount of time, but a good amount of time from people who know that I've been following this story saying, oh my God, John, there's a new allegation against Jerry Sadowski. What's up with this one? And I, my first reaction is always like, Dude, if you've already uh, acknowledged that the uh, the 36 guys that got paid over $100 million by Penn State were full of crap, why would this one make you even remotely concerned that you got it wrong? Let's be clear. This is an allegation coming forward eight years after the most high-profile arrest in the history of child molestation, certainly in Pennsylvania, but probably in the country. And then, of course, when Joe Paterno gets fired a couple of days later, it's the biggest sports news story so far of at least the decade, if not the millennium. So, so the idea that this is happening eight years after that and seven years after Penn State is giving away over $100 million, it is inherently absurd that anyone would be given any credibility, even if they had some semblance of a rational story. I mean, inherently, that would be not a credible event. It would not be credible unless unless you were, could prove that you were on a desert island for the last uh, eight years. Then, okay, fine. But unless, but if you've been living in civilization, there is no possible way to get around the idea that it took you eight years <laughs> to come forward with this story as an adult. It's not possible. But what makes it even more ridiculous, of course, is that there's this 10-year gap of when this could have happened. So they can't even narrow it down. But they know it happened at the Lash Building. Well, that's the key to what really happened here. The reason why they're saying it happened at the Lash Building is because somebody close to this person, probably their lawyer, knows that that is Penn State's vulnerability. And that is the only thing that would get Penn State's attention at this point with somebody who was fairly young. There, people who were way outside the statute of limitations, they only had one way of getting Penn State's attention. And that is by implicating Joe Paterno. And that's why the two oldest allegations, 1972 and 1976, implicate Joe Paterno in a laughably absurd fashion that the media just lapped up because they 
loved the narrative. And Penn State paid him a couple of dollars to go away. But uh, because those documents got leaked in a way that was highly suspicious and was suspicious and was never expected, certainly by uh, anybody who was supportive of Joe Paterno and was not. A, it was I believe I believe there was a conspiracy. I, I, I am not a conspiracy person, but I believe that those documents were leaked on purpose as a way of putting the final nail in Joe Paterno's coffin by people who were afraid that his legacy was about to be restored because everyone was going to realize, oh my God, we rushed to judgment here. This was outrageous. The poor guy died because of it. And then all of a sudden, literally at that moment, those settlement documents, uh, well, not the settlement documents, but the court documents were, were leaked in a very, very suspicious fashion. Anyway, the point of this all is that if you're a younger guy and you can't implicate uh, Joe Paterno, uh, and you're, you've already missed out on the money grab, uh, then the only way to do this is to, to file a criminal complaint and try to get Penn State's attention that way. And by claiming it happened on Penn State's campus, you might, you might be able to have them go back into the well and give, up, give, them, give you some money, even though they have made it clear they've stopped paying the, the payouts. They've stopped paying. They paid $118 million to 36 different people. Now, you're probably thinking, well, John, what are you basing this theory on? I'm basing this theory on some really, really good evidence. Why? Because this is exactly what happened with our fake accuser. The fake accuser, who I've not released the interview with, who has voluminous evidence of a three-year-plus sting operation on the number one uh, uh, attorney in the case, a guy by the name of Andrew Schumann, an ambulance chaser in State College, and his therapist, a woman by the name of Cynthia McCabe, uh, McNabb, I'm sorry, Cynthia McNabb, uh, this this person was a fake accuser, knew Jerry Sandusky was innocent, went to them, recorded almost everything in a way that I believe was legal. They had no idea he was a fake accuser. They embraced him. They changed his story. And he was doing this purely to try to prove that that Shubin and this therapist are not credible people, that at the very least they can be duped into believing false accusations uh, and embracing them. And at the worst, in Shubin's case, they're actually manipulating false accusations to be morphed into something that Penn State might pay. Because this guy's story got totally changed, and we can prove it with tapes, got totally changed by Shubin because he knew what Penn State was paying and what they weren't. Well, the, the problem with this fake accuser story was that he was outside the statute of limitations by about a year and a half, two years. Otherwise, he would have gotten paid by Penn State because he, was, he went to Shubin back when Penn State was still paying money. So after about three years plus of doing this sting operation, and we had the Newsweek story coming out, Newsweek told us, stop the sting operation. This is going to be the, the key part of our uh, expose cover story in Newsweek magazine, which unfortunately got killed at the very last minute. And Newsweek told us, we think you should kill the sting operation. So... I had the fake accuser kill the sting operation, but he did so not by saying, hey, look, I was a fake accuser. He, was, he basically looked for Shubin to give him a final answer on what he should do because he's outside of statute of limitations, and they have been waiting on the state of Pennsylvania to extend the statute of limitations so that someone like the fake accuser might be able to still make a claim against Penn State. Well, they weren't going to do that. Well, here's where, where things get interesting and get related to this most recent bogus allegation. And that is that Shubin tells the fake accuser, go file a criminal complaint. 
against Jerry Sandusky. He even gives him, we have emails, we have emails. He gives him the contact information, even says in the email, I will call the prosecutor on your behalf to set you up so that you can file a criminal complaint against Jerry Sandusky. This is Andrew Shubin, the number one attorney who uh, has represented at least nine uh, accusers of Jerry Sandusky who got millions and millions of dollars, all of them fraudulent. So he is setting up the fake accuser to file a criminal complaint against Penn State, not against Penn State, against Jerry Sandusky. Why? Because Shubin believes, and this is what he told the fake accuser, that if you file a criminal complaint against Jerry Sandusky and it gets news coverage and the implication in, in, uh, implicates Penn State because of where the abuse took place, Penn State might pay you something even though they're not required to do so because you're outside the statute of limitations. That, to me, is by far the most logical scenario to explain this most recent story. I would love to know who the lawyer is. If it's Schumann, I know for 1,000% sure that's what happened. Even if it's not Schumann, it's perfectly logical that some other lawyer would have realized the same scam, that that's your only option. Penn State has finally closed the door on uh, Fort Knox, but they might open it just a little bit and, you know, trick or treat, here's some candy, go away, because you made this uh, criminal complaint that got some publicity that uh, allegedly implicates Penn State because it happened in the last building. The bottom line is, in a rational world, the media should be laughing at this. It is inherently laughable. And every you could not concoct a more laughable scenario. Eight years later, 10-year time span, no name, no age, no information. It's absurd on its face. And yet there are people who are taking it seriously. I've even had supposedly serious media people tweet at me, hey, Zygmunt Freud, have you seen this? Like, really? Come on. You cannot be this dumb. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, that's what it is. Now, I mentioned that this week, Jerry Sandusky has a new hearing for his resentencing. Technically, his sentence was vacated. It was vacated on a technicality because, frankly, they did everything wrong in this trial. But this was this is one area where the the judges were willing to say, you know what, uh, they did screw this up, and so this needs to be fixed because this doesn't have anything directly to do with whether or not his accusers were lying. No one wants to say his accusers were lying and were money-grubbing scumbags, but they're willing to say, okay, yeah, the law was not filed followed on his sentencing so his sentencing was vacated there the hearing to resentence him was delayed it's currently scheduled for i believe this coming friday i will not be there partially partially because i don't think this hearing's a big deal i i think this is a technicality uh and i also think that there's a good chance he gets at least as much or more of a sentence just because everyone is so damn afraid of being seen as being uh too soft on jerry sandusky so if they're gonna if they're gonna figure out a way to give him the most uh, stringent sentence they possibly can within the law i don't even think his lawyer who's a moron uh knows what he should be getting under the law uh, and so I don't see anything good happening here. But here's here's what I will ask people to think about. All right? Again, let's go to what should be in a rational world. In a rational world, Jerry Sandusky could theoretically, 
could theoretically be let out of prison on Friday because he's already served eight years, right? It, it is theoretically possible that, you know, if the judges look at this and go, wow, boy, we really screwed up the sentencing and uh, he's been a you know good boy in prison. I shouldn't say good boy, but I mean, you know, he's been well behaved in prison. He's a model citizen and uh, he served eight years of his, uh, uh, and, and there's, it is theoretically possible that he could be let out. It would not be outside the realm of, of rationality. Okay. Why is that important? Well, if that was, if he was really a serial child molester, this is important. If he was really a serial child molester who had 36 adult male victims, right? Um, and he was potentially going to get out of prison, every single one of them, or at least a huge number of them, would be attending that hearing and screaming bloody murder to make sure he is not let out of prison. Because he destroyed my life by sexually molesting me. Now, I realize some of them might be, you know, under the theory that this is real, which is not. Uh, they don't want to relive the trauma, right? Uh, okay, well, out of 36, you mean to tell me there's not a few that are going to be pissed off enough at this point to make sure that he stays in prison so their voice is heard? That's what would be happening in a rational world. That's what would be happening if Larry Nasser was having a hearing where he could theoretically be let out of prison. There would be there would be 300 female gymnasts outside the door to that courthouse holding a press conference because why they're real victims. I will guarantee to you there will not be one. I will be willing to, I'll be willing to bet the website framingpaterno.com there will not be one trial victim. Not one person who testified at trial against Jerry Sineski will be there at that hearing to make sure he doesn't get let out of prison. That will not happen. You know why it will not happen? Because they weren't abused. Because they're not angry. They're actually quite happy this all happened because they're now all multimillionaires. And they want this all to be done with because it makes them feel guilty about themselves. They don't want to have anything to do with it. So in, there's the real world, the rational world, uh, of how all these things should be interpreted. And then there's the way the media does it because they're a bunch of fucking morons who are as invested in this fairy tale as five-year-olds are in Santa Claus. Now, I do want to at least mention, and I'm going to save this because this is going to be an ongoing story and I went too long in this podcast, but something happened this week that, uh, you know, since it's somewhat related to the college sports uh, that uh, is in, within the, the auspices of the Jerry Sandusky Penn State story, obviously. I think the biggest story in the modern history of college sports happened this week, and that is the NCAA announced that starting in January of 2021, which is not that long from now, they are going to allow college athletes to financially benefit from their name and likeness. And now the devil is in the details. I would like to see how the NCAA is going to do this. I do not see how there is any way to structure this, as they say, within the confines of the, uh, of the structure of the college, uh, I don't know what they call it, the atmosphere or the principles of college athletics, some gobbledygook, whatever it is. I don't see any way that if you accept the notion that a college athlete can be paid for their name and likeness, how that does not open up a Pandora's box 
the likes of which we have never seen before in athletics or academia. It is astonishing to me, astonishing to me, how few people understand, especially in the media, just how catastrophic this is going to be. Not just dramatic, but catastrophic. The number of unintended consequences that are going to occur because of this are going to be mind-blowing in areas of life we have not even begun to consider. This is so far beyond just a, a basic athletic fairness issue, which is at the heart of the matter. I don't know how in the world you're going to have competitive basketball games or football games when uh, a few top schools are able to pay all their players or have their players be paid by boosters or local companies or their fan base, what have you. Uh, I don't know how in the world you're going to maintain any semblance of even remote competitive balance. Um, but if, in fact, you're allowing athletes to benefit financially from their name and likeness, that's a loophole through which uh, there is there's no stopping. There's no stopping any semblance of the tidal wave of corruption that's going to occur because of that. And here's why. Name and likeness, I, I've never heard a defin definition of name and likeness that doesn't include, for instance, someone's autograph. Right? If you if you own your name and likeness, that means you can sell your autograph. If you can sell your autograph, that means effectively anyone can pay you whatever they want to pay you. And it has inherent plausible deniability. It doesn't matter what it's for. It doesn't matter if it's really to try to fix a game. If it's really uh, because you've taken a liking to a female athlete and uh, you uh, want to curry favor with her, but now, no, you're paying for her for her name and likeness. Boy, that's not going to cause any problems. Uh, you, you, I mean, if it's uh, someone who goes to, my God, my God, think about what's going to happen, especially with the lax transfer rules now. I mean, you can basically transfer from one school to an X without even sitting out a year most of the time now. That's not the way it used to be. They've, they've relaxed the transfer rules, and now in combination with that, you're going to allow anybody to pay an athlete anything they want for their autograph? Because, again, how do you determine what the value of an autograph is? It's subjective. It's whatever the buyer wants to pay. So you could, I mean, you could theory, you could buy, you could pay him a hundred bucks for an autograph, a thousand bucks, ten thousand. What? I mean, I'm sure there's some limits to the to what people would find to be rational, but you know, you just, hey, can you give me a hundred autographs? I'll pay you ten thousand dollars. So, so with the transfer rules being relaxed, now what's going to happen? My God, the, the they're going to be. Boosters from other schools saying, hey, you come to Alabama or, or play basketball at Kentucky and, you know, my local car dealership is uh, really looking to forward to having you endorse our cars for 50000 100000 I mean, the bidding wars are going to be insane. Insane. They're, I, 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 and no one's talking about this. I, I, I am I'm flabbergasted. I am flabbergasted. I think it's mostly because both liberals and conservatives don't see the light here for different reasons uh, and, and because the media is a bunch of morons. But, I mean, liberals think that this is fixing an injustice. And this is so emblematic of what happens in our society now where a perceived injustice against a couple of people, and that's what this is. There, Yes, the current system screws a very, very small number of people who create enormous value for their colleges who do not get paid for it until they turn pro. 
Now they're getting scholarships. They're increasing their their brand. They're getting value. They're getting a lot of value. They're just not getting it in cash, okay? But there are certainly situations where a couple of small examples where particular players, people like winning a Heisman Trophy or whatever, that level of player that they don't, they get screwed. And most of those guys happen to be black. And so therefore, in a liberal mind, this is fixing a horrible injustice that these poor black kids are getting screwed over by these schools who are making so much money from their athletic prowess. Okay, maybe a couple of them really are getting screwed. I would argue that they're not getting screwed nearly as much as people think, but maybe it is happening. But because of this this very isolated reality that a few people are getting screwed, now we got to fuck the whole system. Now everybody's got to get fucked. Now we're going to screw up everybody because of a couple of potential injustices. And so liberals find this very appealing. Kind of like with Ronan Farrow somehow being the arbiter of sexual relationships between men and women. How it is that LeBron James, a guy who never went to college, is the one who's destroying college sports is beyond me. But he's the one that facilitated the whole California law that caused the NCAA to cave like a house of cards. And so that's bizarre. But then... It, so liberals are on this from the standpoint of, oh, the fairness. It's so much more fair. And conservatives think that they're fighting for a free market. I had an interview this week with Michael Medved, who I actually thought was going to get it. And we had a very short time. It was like an eight or nine minute interview. And so I didn't have enough time to, to fully explain it to him. But he and Ben Shapiro and other smart conservatives, they think this is about a free market. I'm like... This is not a free market. This is going to be the opposite of a free market. This is going to be the most contrived, manipulated market you have ever seen. Ever. Because it's going to be like contributing to a political campaign only with no limits. We have limits on how much you can contribute to a political campaign so that one person can't dominate an entire election. Well, now... There's no way. I, I do not see how the NCAA is going to be able to regulate this. I mean, it's going to be insane if they try. They're, they're not going to be able to regulate one rich guy from deciding. You know what? I want to have. I want um, uh, my my alma mater to have the best uh, women's tennis team that's ever happened. So I'm going to sponsor the women's tennis team, and I'm going to pay them a hundred thousand dollars cash each year. And so every good tennis player is going to go to that school, right? Again, destroying competitive uh, uh, balance, but causing a, a myriad of other problems because that's when it. That's just an ego thing on a minor sport. Can you imagine what it's going to be like for the major sports, like basketball? My God, basketball especially, football at least. You've got you know eighty man rosters and you know twenty two guys are starters, and one player doesn't really dominate the game usually. Well, quarterback does. I mean, the, the competition for quarterbacks is going to be just beyond insane. But uh, but in basketball, basketball one player makes everything and the uh oh my god oh my god the corruption that is going to occur when a star freshman when a star freshman goes to a school that's not a duke or a north carolina or a kentucky and they see how good he's going to be or and by the way how are they going to regulate high school uh, recruiting now when, when when the coach goes to recruit now does he bring the local car dealer with him to, to, to lay out the, the endorsement plan for this guy? I mean, is that what's going to happen? 
Because that's what it certainly sounds like. I don't know how you stop it. How do you stop it? There, I mean, and again, the part that blows my mind is nobody is talking about this. I feel like a nuclear bomb was just set off to go, was was just scheduled to go off on January first of twenty twenty one, and everyone went, "Oh, that's interesting. Uh, who's playing tonight?" I mean, they, what? Are we? It's just unbelievable. It is, and, and part of it's because the media is a bunch of morons. Part of it's because liberals and conservatives see their what they want to see in this. Uh, and I, I guess it's mostly because people just don't live in the real world. Uh, people just can't put all the the pieces together here. And and you know, I realize I am. I realize I'm a pessimist. I realize that I am on the pessimistic side of most things, and that maybe I could be wrong. There could be some positives to this. One of the positives, one of the small positives I can see of this is, guess what? Uh, guess what's going to happen? Uh, all of a sudden, guys are going to stick around for four years of college if they're getting paid enough money because now the incentive to go pro has been diminished. So that could be good. Yeah, because I hate the guys that uh, play one or two years and go pro. So that problem might be fixed. Uh, but the, the expense of that problem, uh, fixing that problem, is going to be so extraordinary and happen in so many different ways. Uh, and I, I do believe there's going to be gambling scandals because now you've got inherent plausible deniability. I wasn't paying him to fix a game. I was paying him for his endorsement, for his name and likeness. I, 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 it, the mind boggles. So I, I'm, I, I went way longer on that than I expected, but it's an issue about which I feel very passionately, and I'm sure we'll talk about again sometime uh, in the future. That'll do it for this edition of the World According to Zig podcast. As is always the case, please, uh, I only ask two things of you. Number one, please share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah, they're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh, no wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, one, two, one, two.